Well, last week we talked about the 1997 Apple ad that, um, that uh, was called Think Different. That was the whole idea in 1997 for uh, Apple to jump into this new arena of, of, of a different way to advertising campaign. Their motivation was that they had spent so much money on advertising and they could not see any result of it. So they switched it, that they would actually promote those people who were changers or who were influential, who were doing some of the greatest things in the world around them, both secular um, and uh, Christian, and, and, and they would celebrate them. And then the tagline that was, uh, that was understood was, they probably did it using a Mac. That was their idea. That, that was the message that they would let them, uh, um, that they wanted their consumers to hear. Now, from the Christian perspective, Think Different encourages us to um, actively and intentionally push back on the secular worldview. Remember, the worldview is just the framework um, that we interpret, that we see the world around us. And all of this, when we push back on the secular worldview and we embrace the Christian worldview, what happens is that one act makes it possible for us to not only hear God, but respond to God. Because I believe, I believe that we are more influenced by our secular culture than we realize. And because we are so influenced, and we're not even aware of this, because we are so influenced by this, that we don't realize that sometimes God is pushing or prodding. And so it's, infor- it's important that we actually get ourselves away from the secular influences of the world around us. Now for today, let's step back 65 years for today's slogan. It, it, it was in the 1950s, and um, maybe, I don't know. Nobody probably grew up in the 1950s here. I don't know. Maybe, a little, uh, no, mm-mm. I don't even want to say. I'm going to give everybody the benefit of the doubt and say no. No one here was in the 1950s, all right? Um, it was a transformative time for television. When it, it did not consume our lives like it does today with the onset of so many different channels and streaming options and on-demand options. It did start to become, in the 1950s, central to American culture. Specifically, it was beginning to shape the society's landscape in significant ways. TV advertisements... Uh, were, were still relatively new then, but it was rapidly becoming more and more dominant in shaping popular culture. And to prove this, to some extent, some of us may have heard. We don't, none of us remember any of these. But some of us may remember uh, hearing about Anison, right? Anison, the, the, the commercials that were uh, centered around this pain reliever, uh, um, Anison was the medicine that you would take that would take care of all the pains. Or how about this one? Ajax um, cleaner. The jingle was stronger than dirt, right? Stronger than dirt. It's like the dirt that dad said, rub in that wound. You walk it off. It's stronger than that. Well, I'll put some Ajax in it. And it but the commercials, I actually went back and watched some. The commercials actually had animated pixels 
that would go and do the cleaning when they pour the Ajax or use the Ajax. It would be a little eight. It was like weird. It was really, I mean, hey, way to go there, technology. All right, and how about this one? Um, Elka Seltzer, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. That's transformational. If we're still 70 years later, still doing that. And of course, today, our slogan is from Volkswagen's ad introducing the car that was in the making, believe it or not, for 21 years. The Beetle and the campaign was Think Small. Now, I want you to just, I want to just give a little bit of background here to kind of set the stage for us today. In the 1950s, just, just kind of let me uh, remind you, this was the post-World War II uh, industrial age. And during this time, people craved large and lavish cars. It was the age of the mighty Chrysler. The more of everything you want, Mercury. The Nash Statesman with air flight construction that truly made it look like and become the size of an aircraft carrier. And Pontiac's fabulous for 56 Catalina, promising that you'll love our open, wide, spacious four-door Catalinas. And then the Volkswagen Beetle. In contrast, it was small, compact, and frankly, strange. It, did, it looked really strange. So the ad agency had their hands full because all of this made it difficult to market in an arena that was just so overwhelmed and so flooded with behemoths of cars. And let alone... It had just been 15 years since the end of World War II. And here's Germany trying to introduce and break through the market of a U.S. car industry. Now, the ad agency had their hands full. And so the, they focused on their campaign. They focused their campaign on celebrating the elephant in the room, their size. The Think Small message centered around the car's qualities by giving it personality. If you don't believe me, look at this. Remember this movie? Herbie, the love bug. I mean, how else? You, is there a love ranger? Is there a love Pontiac? No. This was the car that gave them personality. I mean, they, they centered this whole ad agency. They contrasted the traditional car ads that were just, if you will go back and Google some of these images, they just had so much information there. And they contrasted those ads by using negative space, a lot of white space. And so the Think Small campaign became influential for future ads. Not only for the ad that we did last week, remember Apple wanted to stop talking about bits and hardware and their computer's specifications and start celebrating the people to do what? To tug on the heartstrings of their consumers. So if you think about it, any ad you see today that you feel a little bit, oh, that's so cute, it started here. It started here with the Think Small campaign. Now think with me. There's a profound message in this popular slogan. Believe it or not, think small does not appear in the Bible. 
But the broader message of the ad encapsulates the core Christian value of humility. And of course, we, can, we cannot speak about humility unless we actually talk about its counterpart, counterpart in its pride. Now here's C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis paints with his picture words, uh, with his words about these pride and humility in this way. There is one vice, he says, that is uh, that which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and which hardly any people except Christians ever, ever imagine they are guilty of in themselves. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in the Christian morals is humility. Pride, the mentality of pride, and we're only going to just talk about pride for just a little bit. The mentality of pride, the framework of pride, is where we believe, deep down inside, whether we identify this as pride or not, we believe that I deserve that and I don't deserve this. That's pride. Now, we may not label it as pride, but that's really what's happening underneath. Two things that I want us just to kind of entertain here or kind of uh, digest with our minds for a moment when it comes to pride and when it, we talk about um, uh, pride in the sense of C.S. Lewis. The first one is this. There is no sin which makes someone more unpopular. Would you not agree there is no, if, if you meet someone who is prideful, do you really want to go and hang out with them more? You don't. There is no sin which makes someone more unpopular and no sin which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. I had to think about that for a second. No sin that we are more unconscious of in ourselves. Think about this for a second. Stealing. If you make a decision to steal something, you probably know before you do it that it's wrong. You know while you're doing it, it is wrong. And after you do it, you think you have done something wrong. It's no different from cheating or whatever sin you want to put in there. Pride is sneaky. Pride, we don't even realize we, we, that it's actually uh, pride that we're battling. I mean, it lurks in the darkest places of our hearts. And you know what pride does? It itches those desires in the recesses of our sinful natures that convince us that we are owed something or we're due. Now, this is not just necessarily with the finer things in life. We can have pride going through pain and suffering. I don't deserve this. Look at that person over here. They are the ones who dis to deserve that. And so when we sin, we don't automatically call it pride. But as C.S. Lewis writes, in Mere Christianity, by the way, if you have not read Mere Christianity... Just take it and, and, and read it. It is a great book. He writes, unchastity, anger, 
greed, drunkenness, and all of those are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. He continues in the very next sentence. Pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So when it comes to pride, it makes us unpopular and we do not really see it when we are actually practicing it. The next thing, just really kind of set this framework. People do not regularly accuse themselves of pride. Do you ever notice that? When was the last person, someone walked into the room, took the air out of the room and said, whoops, that was me, sorry about that. They usually don't do that. But that same person will quickly recognize it in somebody else. You ever notice that? Think about this. It's easy to spot that person. It's easy to see that person who has elevated pride. And hey, a little bit of uh, advice here. If you can't notice who has the pride in the room, go find a mirror. It's probably you. It really is true. So pride, pride is to think, if pride is to think big of yourself, then humility is to think small of yourself. And like the ad campaign, in the land of aircraft carrier-sized cars, personalities today can be the same way. And egos can be behemoths. We are all called to stand in contrast to this and to think small of ourselves. Now, just so we're all on the same page, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is just thinking of yourself less. This is not an invitation to be Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. You, yeah, Winnie the Pooh. It is on a, oh, it's okay. You want to take my tail? That's okay. My dad was this way sometimes. This is, this is not an invitation to think less of ourselves. It's just to think of ourselves less. Now, when you think about pride and you think about humility, it's interesting when the disciples actually displayed pride, and you don't have to really go look far for places where the disciples are exhibiting pride, all right? Jesus will inevitably be talking about humility. So if you want to find those areas, just go out and see, go out and see, search for all the places where Jesus is teaching about humility. It's probably triggered by the disciples being prideful. It's in our passage, and as Matthew actually records us, records this for us, he also records Jesus' teaching moment for the disciples. And we're going to just quickly walk through this because I'm, I'm just going to set the stage here, just give a little, because I want to focus a little bit on how do we deal with pride? What are the small steps that we can take to think small? And we'll get to that in just a second. But here's our framework. This is, this is how we're going to interpret those small steps in here in a second. On a whole, the book of Matthew 
the themes in the book of Matthew are centered around authority, righteousness, believe it or not, humility, and discipleship. And immediately leading up to our Matthew 18 passage, you'll notice that Jesus is actually doing these miracles and he's teaching and these parables and they all centered around the nature and the value of the kingdom of God. And so what Matthew is doing here is using, is using Jesus' message at this time, whether it's the teaching, the miracles, or the parables, and he is introducing the contrast values that are antithesis to the worldview that they were living in and the worldview that we live in. So when you get to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, we have this verse here, and it says, And about that time, the disciples, about that time, is kind of bringing that context of what Jesus was doing. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, one disciple believed that it was outside of their group, that one person was in their group. And they were asking this question as, who is singular? What one of us, which one of us, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They all came. It's not Peter and Matthew. It's not James and John. All of them came. It gives the idea that they all had been discussing this for some time. And they could not come to an agreement. Are you surprised about that? Are you surprised that they could not come to this agreement on who was the greatest? I'm not surprised. Maybe it was just because of the recent discussion, or maybe it was something that had been going on for some time. But they came to this point where they thought, you know what? We're going to ask Jesus. We're going to go ask Jesus, and we're going to ask him, who is the greatest? And what do we call this? Everybody now? Pride. We'll do this again. What do we call this? Everyone now? Pride. That's right. Each of them were saying, I deserve to be the greatest. I don't deserve to be second to you. They all ask, and they all agreed to ask Jesus. Now, just time out here. Think of, I, I wonder what was going through their mind. How did they expect Jesus to answer that question? Did they really expect Jesus to actually say that one of them was the greatest over the other? Maybe Jesus would have just said, you know what, I love you all the same. You all are leaders in my book, right? That's not what they wanted. So they come and they ask Jesus this question. And so this is what happens next. Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. So you imagine they're all, this wasn't asked in public. They're all huddled around in the side, right? And they call, Jesus, come on over here. And Jesus comes and enters their circle. You got you to gotta solve this problem for us, Jesus. Who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? Jesus does not ask or say anything. It's what Jesus does first that's significant. He puts a child in their midst. And you can almost sense that all of them 
have this air of entitlement. Each of them had defined their own value in their own minds. Each of them could not get their head space out of the space of thinking that they were the greatest. And here comes Jesus, and he kind of sets in the middle, that's the Greek word, in the middle of them, a child. Jesus hears their questions. Each one of the disciples anticipating an answer in their favor. And he lets them finish. There they all are. For this private staff meeting, the disciples ask their question. And Jesus does not say anything yet, but brings this object lesson in their midst. This is what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is serious about something right here. You know what this is like? It's like that prideful moment Peter had when he refused to allow Jesus wash his feet. You'll never wash my feet. This is, this, is, this is serious. He's not talking about any sin. He's talking about the sin of pride right now. This is the sin of pride. How do we know that? It's because the next verse. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He talks about if you don't confess, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. If you become humble, you'll become you'll, uh, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's addressing this as a sin. The one who is the greatest, according to Jesus, is the one who is humble. That's Jesus' message. And I think there's value. Before we talk about why, how we become humble, I think it's important we see the value. I want to hang the carrot out there for you to actually give us a little bit of motivation here about why we should strive to be humble. The first one is the reason we should be humble is because humility deepens your relationship with God. It opens the door for you to go deeper in your spiritual growth. It draws your attention to the sneakiness of pride. Humility is that spark that ignites it, that spiritual growth. Think different, remember last week, leads to transformation leads to us being different from the world. But from there, think small, leads us to becoming more Christ-like. Where think different makes us transform, transforms us, think small makes us more Christ-like. Humility, when we practice humility, 
it actually causes us to be more dependent upon God. And that in of itself deepens our relationship with God, right? Jesus lifts up this child, a metaphor of low status, a metaphor of dependence, a metaphor of vulnerability of a, as a model of the one who is to be the greatest. And in a world that is often championing ambition, success, thinking big, Jesus' teaching is a radical call to think small in terms of embracing humility and recognizing our dependence upon God. And this in of itself, any one of these, and all together so much exponentially more, deepens your relationship with God. Here's the next carrot. Humility actually reorients, reorients our perspective of the world we live in. Just quickly, it, humility reframes what you don't have and what you think you want. I mean, that in of itself is, it changes our perspective. Humility actually tells us that we don't need social media to define who we are. And so it makes us easier to make those strict digital boundaries that are needed. How about not only on self-worth and value? Think about how we actually see suffering. Humility reorients our, or reframes suffering for us. It takes us and turns on its head this earthly perspective and causes us to embrace an eternal perspective. It promotes gratitude in the midst of suffering. For the promises of God in Lamentations 3 where it says, Great is thy faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning. Here's the last carrot. Not only does it deepen your relationship with God, not only does it reorient your perspective of the world we live in, but it also simplifies your faith. If any of them actually cause me or pique my interest is this one. All of them are great, but this one really speaks to me because we have a tendency to overcomplicate faith. We want to overcomplicate the theological intricacies of what we believe. There are doctrines, there's rituals. We baptize children, but you don't baptize children. We baptize adults, and we'll fuss, and we'll fume, and guess what? We'll split because of that. That's so unsimplistic. It's complicated, all right? That is so complicated. I mean, don't you wish, no matter what denomination we come from, that we could celebrate what brings us together, what, what we will go to the mat for and not... Uh, uh, chastise each other and elevate the things that make us different. And it takes humility for us to say, you are my brother and sister in Christ, even though you don't have drums in your worship service. Or you painted that wall fuchsia. What? Humility simplifies your faith. Now there's your carrot, my friends. You want to grow deeper with God? You want to reorient, reframe your perspective? 
You want to just simplify what you're talking about? Then you and I should start taking at least some small steps to thinking small, to think small. Now, I'm going to go quick because these are all self, self-explanatory. And at the end, I want you to just choose one for the week. Just choose one of these. The, the, the first one is regularly practice self-examination. Regularly practice self-examination. I put scripture passages on there. You read over that. You see if what I'm saying is right. Go back. Be like a Berean in, in Acts 17. And, and after you hear myself preach to you and teach, you go back and search the scriptures and see if I'm saying something that's true. All right? Practice self-examination. This is the only one that I'm going to expand just a little bit because I had to do this. When Lisa and I uh, were dating and, and um, before we got married, we worked in a church. We were living in Wilmore, Kentucky, and we were li- working in a church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. And it was called Olive Branch United Methodist Church on Zaring Mill Road. All right? It is in the middle of nowhere, but about a quarter of a mile down the road, uh, uh, across the street from Myrtlewood, lives this couple named Jerry and Maureen Shockett. Now, I came in, and I was new, so we did Tuesday night youth there, and I led worship for Sunday morning and things like that, and it was, it was a lot of fun and things like that. But I remember, do you remember this time? They invite us over for dinner a few months while we were there. They invite us over for dinner or lunch after church, and, um, and so we go over there, and we... We were blindsided, I was at least. I said, John, do you realize that you take the air out of a room when you, some of you said, yes, finally, you realize that? No, I mean, you are a one-man show. You want to do all this. You want to kind of, and listen, I got to tell you, I was really blindsided, and at first I was angry. But you know, for 30 years, I have been reexamining myself since then. 30 years, I've been very cautious of things. And i got to tell you, probably 80% of the time, I get it wrong. But afterwards, I recognize it. At least I recognize it. Sometimes I get it right. You know, pride is sneaky. It's like the spider in the co- that makes the cobwebs. The sin that comes from pride is like the cobwebs we want to clean out. But we've got to be careful not to forget the spider that made it. And pride is that spider. And we've got to have regular self-reflection. All right? These are going to be quicker. Regularly serve others. You want to be more humble? Regularly serve others. A few months ago, I preached a sermon on the service that serves us. Go back and listen to it. Service that serves us. You want to be humble? Then serve. Serve with humility. Others. The next one. I want you, if you want to take a small step to think small, intentionally embrace trials and challenges. Our, we're wired to push back on these. We're wired to say, I don't deserve this, and I don't deserve that. But intentionally embracing the trials and tribulations and challenges actually help promote humility. And obviously, this one should go without saying. Avoid, at all costs, boasting and comparison. At least 
Keep your mind listening for you boasting or trying to compare yourself. The last one is finally, acknowledge God's role in your life. Now, out of all of these, I want you to do something. On your sheet of paper, I want you to circle one of them. One of these, I pray, you need to put in practice this week. This needs to become the forefront for you. And I don't care how you remind yourself, but it's more about praying about it over yourself. Just imagine if you and I, if at least just in the church, we can deal with pride, let alone in the world around us. But on our turf, if we can just for a moment embrace humility, stop bickering about the questions that promote one over the other. You know, the larger picture of this is that God is rescuing, redeeming, and restoring. But we have a part in this. And that is to actively and intentionally do that. One of these. There's also in the back of your sheet, John Wesley's questions that he would ask in the Holy Club every single day. There are about 30 of them. I took out my favorites. Maybe one of those will help you also. My gracious Father, I pray and thank you for this opportunity that we have, you have given us to gather together. And what I pray, O oh God, is that through your Spirit, through your power, that you will allow us to be, encourage us to see the value of seeing others better than ourselves. To practice, O oh God, what Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, each of you should think more of the other than yourself. Taking on the, the, the example of Christ, who even though he was God, deity emptied himself and became nothing. He was obedient to death on the cross. Oh, can you imagine the need for humility there? And so, Lord, if we could just get 2% of that right now, if we could just take 2% of our calendar and focus on the upcoming week and say, I'm going to practice this. Not for me, but so we can be closer to you. So that we, oh God, would grow deeper. So that the world's pain and sufferings will no longer control us. So that we will be confident and have faith that you are the one who holds us. And that nothing takes you by surprise. Because we know that without that confidence, it's impossible to please you. So allow humility to be that for us.
And we ask this, O oh God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.